0: I could have been a contender. I
1: could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. I never got
0: on those, those
2: stuff, boys. Good morning. You're very welcome to Second Captain Sunday. Oh, my debit here with Murph and Ken. Hi, fellas.
0: Good morning, Owen. How are you?
2: I'm good. I've got a piece of homespun political advice to kick things off, if you don't mind. Oh, oh always good, old. Never trust a man who's in love with his own nickname. I'm talking about the mooch, Ken. Anthony Scaramucci. He signed off last Sunday's show by assessing his opening weekend as White House communications director. Little did we know, little did we know. It's been a bit up and down since then. Yeah, the impact he was going to have in his first full week on the job. And buried deep inside his jaw-dropping interview in The New Yorker Mm -hmm. is the line, the mooch showed up a week ago. This is going to get cleaned up very shortly, okay? (laughs) Now, as far as I'm concerned, if you are unlucky enough to have a nickname stick at any point in Mm. your life, the best you can do is grin and bear it probably the best advice to actually refer to yourself in the third person and to do it by using your nickname well I'm starting to worry that this White House administration guys is beginning <laughs> to show signs of careering off the rails here this is the tipping point man uses his yeah. own nickname
1: Yeah, I think he's just he's just channeling uh, the big boss you know that's mm-hmm. the way I mean Trump will say they love Trump People love Trump, you know, and he's he's kind of imitating that. He knows that that's what he's being... The
2: problem being that the mooch is now being called a mooch, or has been pretty much from the start, by journalists and by the public. Uh-huh. So maybe the way to deal with these people is to not give them such oxygen. Okay? Well,
1: knows? he has had a tough week. I mean, I mean, it's been reported that his wife has decided to leave him, uh, even though she just gave birth to their baby during the week. Mm. Um, he didn't see the baby, but did apparently text his wife congratulations, I will pray for our child. Right. But he was too busy with the new job to to drop by.
2: Anything interesting going on in the Sunday papers? Here?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, column of the day has to go to uh, Kevin Myers. He's written what I suspect will be the most talked about piece of the weekend uh, in the Sunday Times. Sorry, ladies, equal pay has to be earned, is the headline. Um, so essentially it's a, it's a column about the... Current controversy over the gender pay gap at yeah. the BBC, and he and he groups Orte in there as well. He notes, you know, female columnists in particular have angrily, the only mood many of them know, demanded equality. Uh, so he criticises the BBC for being sort of politically correct and and all this kind of thing. He mentions the uh, PC traitors uh, who have stifled and corrupted all useful debate on national identity, immigration, and race. Okay, so so far so so standard, you could say. <laughs> Um, and, and goes on to, to list some possible reasons why men get paid more than women in these jobs. Uh, is it because they're more charismatic performers, because they work harder, because they're more driven? Possibly. Uh <laughs> Uh, the The Human Resources Department will probably tell you men usually work harder, get sick less frequently, and seldom get pregnant, uh, but he mentions essentially that the main reason for this is ambition that sort of driving okay. male ambition which which women lack and also these men who employ better agents who get better bargains for them, unlike women who employ, who apparently employ pretty poor agents and end up with bad deals uh, the maybe the 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 one that's the the paragraph that 's really causing a lot of um, reaction this morning. Is uh, when Myers says, I note that two of the best paid women presenters in the BBC, Claudia Winkleman and Vanessa Feltz, with whose no doubt sterling work I'm tragically unacquainted, are Jewish. Good for them. Jews are not generally noted for their insistence on selling their talent for the lowest possible price, which is the most useful measure there is of inveterate lost with all hands stupidity. So, uh, I mean, this might be more the beige PC liberalism uh, that Kevin Myers uh, is decrying in this kind, but I'm not sure what bringing in the covetous Jew stereotype uh, is really adding to this uh, debate at this time. Mm,
0: that's It's an interesting uh, uh, take on charisma that this particular uh, male broadcaster and journalist has. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not entirely sure that's what, what the broadcasters are looking for. I,
1: I would say that the reaction to this column has been at best mixed. Um, in fact, I can already foresee a column about... Online mobs and cyberbullying <laughs> uh, at some uh, point yeah. in the near future.
2: If you feel the urge to get in touch this morning, just text one or tweet at Seton Captains. The race to become our greatest ever non sports person sports person was blown wide open last week. Murph, how are things shaping up in the leaderboard after three episodes of the current
0: series? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody.
2: We stood for the national anthem when we turned and faced the flag and I cried I was 18 I, cried. I was playing for Legion United at the time but I cried at the, at the thought of what my mum and dad who were at home would be thinking right now you know, and obviously for me that was only the start of what I'd hoped would go on to play 21s and senior level which obviously didn't happen in the end
0: Yes, it's that time again, Owen, when I explain to you, as patiently as I can, uh, how we go about finding Second Captain Sunday's greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2017. It's easy, really. You hand over complete control to me, the independent adjudicator, and you accept without question my assessment of our guest in a variety of key areas: sporting ability, knowledge, and all round. Je ne sais quoi Sounds fair uh, You just heard from last week's guest Nicky Byrne Describing the highlight of his sporting career Playing underage football for Ireland He's our new leader And even with a cruel handicap Placed on him by me His score of 87.5 out of 100 Is the target for today's guest And if not finishing last is more his saying. Then Maeve <laughs> Higgins's seventy-two points is the admittedly low bar needing to be scaled. This morning's guest, Murph, faced with the
2: unenviable task of taking down Nicky Byrne for top spot as a writer, comedian, and presenter of one of the most remarkable television shows out there at the moment. The Last Leg started out as a late night sort of alternative look at the Paralympic Games during London twenty twelve. It's grown into one of the biggest primetime programs on British TV. The absolutely superb Adam Hills is popping in today. You can tweet us at second captains. You can text us 51551 email secondcaptains at or just sit back, relax, and take it all in. It's up to you. It's your Sunday morning after all. Adam Hill's coming right up. This is Second Captain Sunday.
1: I'm Calling.
2: Alabama shakes there with I found you You're listening to Set and Captain Sunday and this morning's guest joins us fresh from performing at the Vodafone Comedy Festival in Dublin's Ivy Gardens last night presenter of the brilliant The Last Leg on Channel 4 and still dining out on his competent performance as a ball boy at the 1986 Sydney Indoor International <laughs> Tennis Tournament
3: <laughs> Adam <laughs> Hills welcome to the show <laughs> I'm going to say I mean I've been racking my brains for my sporting highlights <laughs> during the week and I've come to the conclusion if, if I, we give you homework yes yes, I come to the conclusion if I had any sporting highlights I wouldn't be a comedian <laughs> I mean I gave everything a crack yeah, yeah. as a kid uh, and as a young adult and even as an older adult mm. and uh, if any of them had paid off I wouldn't be here right now <laughs> well tell us the reason you're
2: here is for one reason only it's to claim the prize as Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person sports person so we need to establish your Irish links yep. within that scenario straight away you lived here for a few years uh, I lived in
3: Dublin for a couple of years yes uh, and if you I mean if you want to do the American thing and oh, yeah. go back through the grandparents <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My grandmother on my father's side was a Doyle uh, and came from a long line of Doyles, but I've never done that. Having, sp- having spent some time in Dublin, I've realised that, you know, if you claim Irishness by going back four generations, uh, that kind of loses your friends at this point. <laughs> it's only when there's an assumption that oh, you know these go. people. Yeah. You've got the Doyle's Murphy. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: You don't know a Murphy from Cork, do you? <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we would or two, yeah. We asked
2: our researcher, Conrad Arty to verify this information. Not that we didn't, didn't trust you on it, but it didn't take him very long, believe it or not. From Ken, when Connor was a kid, he once, on. his, he once had his bunk bed assembled by Adam Hill. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is pre superstar status, so a job's a job, I suppose.
3: <laughs> I wasn't even paid for it. Yeah. it um, and that's hilarious after you're saying, you know, we don't all know each other on this yeah. island. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. but you're a researcher. Yeah, I think I was living with David O'Doherty at the time. I okay. was uh, in his spare room. And I uh, went and, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> constructed a bunk bed for your researcher.
2: You're gigging with him tonight. You I were am indeed. You gigging yes. with Dara
3: Breen last night? Yes. Both of whom are for
2: former This Sporting Life contestants. How do you think you're going to fare about, against those comedy and sporting giants? I'm going
3: to take a punt. I'm going to say uh, better than Dara, but not as well as as the D.O.D. <laughs> uh, D- I, Dave, David O'Doherty... I mean, he's quite the handy footballer. Yeah. Uh, I reckon he's got some sporting. There's something I'm sure I've had conversations with him in the past. Yeah, I'm sure he's sporting. told you that he once tackled
2: Dennis Hickey. Uh, Irish yeah, yeah, player, that that story, yeah. yeah. So what stage um, of your
3: career were you at when you moved to Dublin? Uh, very early about? on. So it was 98. Eight when I started coming over here. So a friend of mine from Australia had set up a comedy agency here um, and she had said, come over and we'll get you some gigs. Uh, so I ended up just living in Dublin on and off for a while. I'd go back to Australia, I'd come back here. So it was it was when I first started doing the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. Um, can I also say, though, I think I'm going to do better than Dara. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, but there's, there's a lot of... Here. We're all very com- competitive. <laughs> but um, I once <laughs> tried to put Dara on a, on a boogie board in Australia and teach him to surf and, I mean...
1: What um, is a boogie board?
3: A boogie board it's like a uh, like a half size surfboard that you lie on.
1: Okay.
3: Uh and so when the wave picks you up you don't stand you just you lie. You, you literally don't have to do anything except just hold <laughs> on to the board. Sounds quite easy. And Dara could not do that. (laughs) So I reckon I'm I'm better than that, uh, but not as good as the DOD. And so, yes, I was here in 99. um, And it was at this time where there was a real lovely comedy community here around that time. There was partly because of this agency that my friend set up. um, uh, That was when Dara came through, Deidre O'Kane, David O'Doherty, Des Bishop... I mean, and then Carl Spain and Neil Delamere, and we were all, and Jason Byrne, and um, uh, you know, the, the, I was a regular performer at the Dublin Comedy Improv on a Monday night, and all of those people, just from that that one nurturing agency, really kind of felt like they all went out and took over the world. Did you find you
2: connected well with Irish people, Irish comedy fans? This is your chance to say something really
3: nice about. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. loved it, absolutely loved it, absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, I'm, I'll make the joke on stage that you've got to just remember that Irish audiences are funnier than you are, but <laughs> that, that's not just a joke. Like, you know, in England, you kind of go, what do you do? And someone will go, I'm a teacher. Yeah, right, that's <laughs> probably not going anywhere. <laughs> and in Ireland, you go, what do you do? And then you just sit back for like 10 minutes <laughs> <right, right, right. laughs> while the audience members get more laughs than you. I read that it was around this period that you started
2: talking about your prosthetic leg, you've got a prosthetic leg. Yeah. It was around that sort of time that you started
3: bringing that into your comedy, is that right? It was. It was 2001. It was at uh, the International uh, here on Wicklow Street. I remember the first night I ever talked about my leg. Oh, that's not true. I talked about it when I first started doing comedy in the very, very early days because I ran out of material one night and I had to make a joke about something else. And this comedian took me aside backstage and he went, you're not good enough to talk about your leg yet. I went, what do you mean? He said, you're, you're a charmer. Only- Sorry? He's a real charmer, isn't he? Yeah, he was like a a bear. He used to call himself Yoda. Um, And he said, you're not good enough. He said, and it was lovely advice, actually. He said, look, you're still working out how to be funny and why to be funny and why things are funny and what you're trying to say on stage. And if you start talking about your leg now, you're just going to use it for cheap laughs. You you need to wait until you get really good at comedy and you know what you're doing and why you want to do it. And it was great advice. So I didn't talk about it for years. And then it was... um, September 11, uh, September 11, I flew... On the day of September 11, I was in Birmingham and I was flying back to Dublin, having just done a show with Ross Noble in Birmingham. And then two days later, I flew out of Dublin to Paris and I was ready for everyone to check because my prosthetic sets off metal detectors. So I was ready for, okay, I'm going to have to take it off. This is going to be full-on security. And I went through Heathrow, as it turned out. Dublin wasn't too bad. Going through Heathrow, I remember, like setting off the metal detector and everyone coming over to have a look, right, what's going on, what's going on? And as soon as I said prosthetic, they went, oh, I'm really sorry, mate, go, just go, don't worry about it. And I was thinking, no, (laughs) no, check it. I want you to check it. I want to make sure this flight is safe. And that was the first time I realised, all right, I've got to start talking about my foot now because people are so scared of offending, uh, you know, someone who may have a disability that they will possibly let a terrorist (laughs) onto a flight. (laughs) And I thought, right, that's the first time. so, and then the weird thing was, the first time I started talking about it, I remember at the international, the audience, I got this feeling from the audience of like, why are you telling us this? Because if you are walk we out a, on stage we can't and you've laugh got... On
1: this. We can't laugh on
3: this. We? Well, no, it's like, it was a little bit of that. But if you walk out on stage with, you've got one arm or you've got cerebral palsy or, you know, you look different, you've got to talk about it straight away. But mm. when you're out on stage for five minutes, you go, oh, by the way, I've got a prosthetic foot. People go, what, what, why do we need to know that? <laughs> That's not obvious. Now, Now we feel weird. Mm. And so it took a good few... Months, I'd say, of working out how to talk about it without freaking out an audience, uh, and then and and for me, telling that story about security was important because it gave it like let the audience know that there was a reason for me talking about it.
2: You were obviously ready at that stage of your career, though. It was a long time after <clears throat> what you said at oh, the moment was earlier on. Thirteen years yeah, after, yeah, this, yeah. <laughs> even <laughs> though maybe it didn't hit straight away, <laughs> you were pretty quickly able to. Find a way to make audiences comfortable with this and talk about
3: it. And, it, and it, do you know what? It was exactly what that guy had said to me 13 years earlier. He was completely right, and I found a reason to talk about it. And the reason to talk about it was to let people know it's okay. Don't panic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all right to ask someone why they've lost a pro You know, why they've lost a leg or what happened or something like that.
2: How did you?
3: Well, how did the last leg program come about? What was the idea behind it? Oh man, a happy accident is the best way <laughs> to describe it. I, I got a call, so I went to the. I went to the Paralympics in Beijing in 2008 um, to cover it for Australian TV. And i had been asked when I was about... And this is possibly of all... I mean, I can go through the litany of sporting lowlights. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you're here for. (laughs) All the games I've lost, all the things I've screwed up, uh, all the comedy moments I've got out of sport. And yet, when I was... 14, I think it was, I was asked if I would consider trying out for what was called, what I was told were the disabled games, the disabled Olympics. And I went, no, I'm not disabled. I didn't know any people with disabilities. I was like, I'm not disabled. If I'm going to play sport, I'm going to play with able-bodied people. And then years later, when I went to Beijing and watched the Paralympics, I got it and I went, oh my God, they're not disabled. None of them think they're disabled. (laughs) No Paralympian thinks they're disabled. And I always thought, because I'm only missing a foot. I thought, well, it'd be unfair. I can't go and race against people who are missing. I didn't know about the classification system, that I'd be up against people with similar Mm. disabilities to me. And now you look at someone like, you know, Johnny Peacock, who's the fastest, you know, he's over the 100 metres, the fastest amputee sprinter or lower leg amputee sprinter. I think that's exactly what I would have been doing. So had I possibly taken that route when I was maybe 14, I would have ended up in the Paralympics. So when I got to Beijing in 2008... Absolutely blew my mind. And the one thing we were told by um, one of the Australian, the Australian chef de mission, he said, took all the journalists aside and said, right, here's the one thing you need to know about para sport. It is not disability sport. Mm. It is elite sport. These aren't people who are just here because everyone gets a medal. These people have trained for four years constantly every day to get here and they are the top of their game. And if you treat this like sport they will love you for it and if you treat them like people with disabilities or call them inspiring or, or, or gush over them, they will hate you for it. <laughs> so so I knew then, I had the epiphany that, that people always have when they watch Paralympic sport, um, but I got it in Beijing. And so then when London 2012 came around, I got a call from Channel 4 or my managers got a call saying, would Adam consider hosting this late night comedy show? And then it was meant to just be me and then Josh Whittacombe was going to be one special guest and Alex Brooker was going to be another. And then after the first show, they realised the three of us had a real thing together. Um, And they went, right, that's it. It's the three of you for the rest. (laughs) But we only thought it was going to be ten nights. We just thought it was going to be ten nights and then that was it. And then Channel 4 kept asking us to do more and more stuff. Were you (coughs) worried at
2: all about the reaction? You're talking about comedy, you're talking about trying to bring comedy into coverage of the Paralympics. Mm. Were there at the start any fears there that this mightn't go down well, that people might just think we're making fun of people with disability?
3: Yeah, it was a real... I mean, again, when we sat down, I echoed the guy from the... Beijing Paralympics when I said to the producers, we've got to take the sport seriously. We can't just go on and go, here's a funny thing, here's a funny thing. We've got to go, hey, awesome, this person won gold, this person did a personal best. We've got to cover that properly. And once you've done that, then you can have fun with the rest of it. Um, But, I mean, some of the list of the names that were suggested for the show, (laughs) we ended up with the last leg and I was a bit, I didn't even want it to be a leg joke in the name of the show. But then I thought, last leg, there's almost like three meanings there, isn't it? You're on late your late up-
0: nice. Yeah.
3: yeah, it's the last leg of a relay. It's the last leg of the coverage. Also, you're on your last legs. I'm on my last leg. Okay, I get it. But some of the names... Can you that- remember? Can you Yeah, yeah, them? there was... Um, uh, okay, dwarves aren't magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh- what a meeting to have been in. Wow. We've got a whole list somewhere. There's no such uh, thing as a bad idea except that one that we just heard. Uh, okay. Amputee and scones. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, they all deserve a medal. Uh, yeah. And my personal favourite, can you imagine, you know, you've just watched the days uh, <laughs> the days athletics and you can't. G'day, I'm Adam Hills here with Josh Whittacombe and Alex Brooker. Welcome to Mobility Scooters Are For Fat People. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It doesn't really ad- roll off the
2: tongue, does it? <laughs> I think The Last Leg was probably the yeah, best. Yeah, I think you've <laughs> yeah, done that's well there. a certainly, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: But even then, once the ads started running for The Last Leg, before we d- had had been on air, the amount of complaints that I saw on Twitter, oh, I can't believe it's- Channel 4, you're just going to do... Because Channel 4 had come off the back of Big Brother and-, and kind of trashy television. So people just assumed, as soon as they saw a Paralympic show called The Last Leg, they assumed it was just going to be really inappropriate. Um and then once people saw the first episode and they realized that you've got two people with supposed disabilities and they saw what we were what we were doing people were fine but yeah it was up until that point it was a bit dodgy. Yeah,
2: I think and if if people watched the show and as I mentioned in the introduction it's morphed into something else now mm. but recently the World Para Games were on, Parathletics Championships so you were back into that sort of a zone. I think everyone would see that it's coming from a a kind place, there's no mean-spiritedness to to it. But I'm wondering, are there moments when you're wondering, are we crossing the line here? There was was a clip you played of a commentator telling the backstory of one particular athlete and he describes him as being desperately unlucky because he lost an eye to a catapult fired by his brother when they were messing around with a donkey as kids. And then he lost his other eye in an accident with the same donkey a few years later. Now, did you have to think about things before putting that out there? I know when I just state this baldly, it doesn't quite have the same comic
3: impact as the way you presented it. Well, it's also the seriousness with which the commentator said it. You know, when you've got the... Had a tragic accident as a child, lost an eye to a donkey... Years later lost the other die other eye in an accident with the same donkey. <laughs> 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 so, well, but the, see, these are the things that the Paralympians laugh at. Mm. And that's what I learned in Beijing. Some of the stuff that was said to me <clears throat> off camera. Remember being at the final night party, the after party, so everything had finished. And you've got a room full of Paralympians and you've got in a bar, drinking alcohol, because it's the first time they've had a drink in ages, and you've got a guy with cerebral palsy chatting up someone in a wheelchair, you've got a blind girl chatting up someone with one arm. All of this is going on, and I remember one of the coaches looking at me going, oh, mate, can you imagine the categories that are going to be born out of tonight? <laughs> <laughs> is, is that kind of the line, though? Like, the
0: if you think a Paralympian can laugh at it, then it's it's fair enough, or...?
3: Well, we knew when we started in 2012. That's how we knew we were doing okay. When we started getting tweets, I think it was about three nights in. The "Is it okay?" tweets came out of the blue. I think the first night we were on air, I looked at Twitter afterwards, and someone said, "Is it okay to fancy some of the Paralympians because they're quite fit?" And I was like, well, "Yeah, why wouldn't you? Of course you're allowed to." So then the next- you really have to walk a few people through this whole process. Obviously. Yeah, and I guess you know that's that's. And again, that goes back to that thing 13 years ago. What's the reason behind it? What's the reason behind covering Parasport? And the Is It Okays were just a way of saying to everyone, it's fine, like it's absolutely <laughs> fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so then that became a segment, Is It Okay? And then I think about four nights in, we got, how, I think it was, how does a guy with, how does a guy with no arms get out of the pool at the end of his race? And so we looked into it and we covered it. But then I realised that came from the captain of the US wheelchair rugby team. (laughs) (laughs) So Paralympians had the... And that's when we realised, and then people were saying to us, oh, all the Paralympians in the village are watching this every night because they can't go out. They're not allowed out, uh, you know. So they all sit in and they all watch um uh, the last leg so i've now realized that we're actually like Paralympians around the world watched us and that's when i realized we're on the, we're doing the right thing if they're okay with it we're fine
2: well i guess there there have been a million shows comedy shows built around able bodied sports and there's tons of them out there at the moment so yeah, but, but by definition if those shows don't exist around paralympics
3: then it, it's being treated differently yes I, exactly I would have thought, yeah. yeah yeah and part of it there was uh, two guys called Roy and HG Australian comedians who in 2000 they had a late night um, comedy show about the Olympics uh, in, on Australian TV, and the the woman in charge of Channel Four at the moment is originally Australian, and she had that in the back of her mind when the when the Paralympics came to Channel Four. So yeah, she basically did for Paralympics what has been done for able-bodied sport for years. The World Championships recently sold more tickets. I read than any than
2: the other seven combined up yes. until then. It was it was on in London. The Paralympics was absolutely huge when it was on in London in 2012, where that show started. Is there any particular reason why people in the UK seem to have, have bought into this, have supported this in a way that is more seems more passionate and more engaged than pretty much any other country?
3: Um, I think it was a bit of a perfect storm. I think whenever a country has the Paralympics, it does tend to increase... The kind of awareness of it. And, and Sydney, uh, when they had the Olympics and Paralympics in 2000, um, the awareness of parasport took off after that. Because up, up until then, it's got to be pointed out, up until then, the Paralympics and the Olympics were kind of separately run. So from what I understand in Atlanta, the, Paralympics tur- the Paralympians turned up in, what was that, 96. And... <clears throat> The beds had been taken out of their accommodation, and the timing equipment was being dismantled whilst they were trying to do (laughs) events. So after that, the IOC stepped in and went, right, if you do the Olympics, you've got to do the Paralympics as well, and you've got to do it properly. So Sydney was the first time that the Paralympians were treated as equals, and then London was the first time they were treated as heroes. And what, what happened in the meantime, you've got Athens in 2004, which was a bit of a debacle on all sides. Beijing did a great job at the Paralympics because they wanted to prove to the world that they they don't hate disabled people, (laughs) basically. Um, But London was just, I think, here's what I think happened in London. Londoners and English people were convinced the Olympics was going to fail. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? There was that whole, I remember flying out. I I missed the opening of the Olympics because I'd gone to Montreal for the comedy festival. And on the way to the airport, this cabbie was going, oh, mate, it's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be bloody awful. You're not going to be able to move. The city's going to get clogged up. We're going to make an absolute mess of it. And then I remember flying back in <laughs> and getting a different cabbie and going, so how was the Olympics? He went, it was awful. There was no one here. <laughs> the city was empty. The streets were clear. <laughs> but I think after that opening ceremony and the whole Olympics, all of, all of England and all of London in particular, went. oh, my God, we got it right. Oh, my God, I didn't expect that to happen. And they were like, I want to do it again now. And then thankfully... It was the perfect storm of the the Paralympics being on Channel 4, not BBC, so it wasn't an afterthought. Channel 4 went at a competition, and, and the day the Olympics finished, they put up mm. massive banners saying thanks for the thanks for the warm-up. Yeah. <laughs> and then they released this amazing ad with public <laughs> yeah. still still a public... Superhumans. The Superhumans ad. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. So all of this just led... It made the Paralympics look amazing. The, the British people were ready to get behind it. The Channel 4 coverage was great. The last leg kind of topped it off at the end of the night. So it just... It was the end of that amazing summer of 2012. And I think people just want to recapture that. And yet you still have this, as
2: you say, well, a number of years ago, there was a discomfort among people to talking to disabled people or talking to people about disabilities. Yep. And there was a survey just before the World Championship started, actually, the World Power Championships in the UK reporting that one in four British people admit to consciously avoiding having conversations with disabled people because they're f- afraid to cause offence. Yep. They don't know what to say, this kind of thing. Are you surprised that... that- Still exists to that level. No. I, I know we're putting a lot of store in one survey here, but
3: no. I mean, we talked about this on the last leg, and Alex Brookham made a really good point in that. You know, a lot of that is politeness. You know, it's, it's some avoiding a conversation with a disabled person because you don't want to say the wrong thing. There's a there would be a percentage of that one in four who are just overly polite and don't want to make a mess of it. And again, I think that's why the last leg worked and why I worked because. An Australian stepping into the middle of that. I mean, mm-hmm. an, Engla- an English person hosting the last leg would have been. I mean, I mean, well done, that chap. He's he's he's, well, he's he's differently <laughs> able And I guess whereas you yeah, know, yeah, politeness
1: <laughs> is very boring, really. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. But I mean, say earlier you were saying, for instance, uh, you know, it's okay to ask me, you know, about my foot. Now, I mean, say say I, I met you and somehow noticed that you had a prosthetic foot. I'm not sure how that would happen because it's not immediately obvious when you're walking around, but. I would – if if I did if it did register with me, I might be reluctant to say anything about it because, number one, I don't want to kind of give the impression that I feel you're somehow different from me. Number two, I think maybe you get asked about this a lot and you're tired talking about it and it's the last thing that I want to ask about. I mean, why are you – you're saying, no, actually, go ahead and, and uh, talk to me about it. Yeah, if you want to. I mean, I guess uh, none of those
3: reasons that you've given make me – Think that's a bad thing. That's politeness. That's that's thinking ahead. That's not wanting to inconvenience someone. Mm. I mean, there was a moment last night on stage. There was a, a kid down the front in a wheelchair, and um, uh, I said because I was talking about you know crowd surfing him like the Coldplay gig, <laughs> which was never going to happen because he was in a motorized chair. It was massive. Oh, just on that side, there was the Coldplay <clears throat> gig in Dublin, wasn't it? Just yes, right? there was a, a, a fellow in a wheelchair crowd surfing yes, through the yes, place. Yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, and so I said to this guy, "Can I ask how much of your legs are working?" And there was a, oh, but and he answered straight away because I knew it's 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 actually fine. So, yeah, if you asked me those questions, I'd be absolutely fine with it. And, and what's interesting is um, disabled people will ask those questions of each other. Like uh, we did a Last Leg episode a couple of weeks ago and Sophie Kamlish was on who won the 100 metres um, at the para-athletics. She has a similar prosthetic to me. And we had a real kind of... So she was like, so what happened to yours? And I said, oh, it was from birth. And you? She went, yeah, me too. I was like, oh, my God. She <laughs> said, I used to have like two toes on the end of my like, oh, So did I. And we, we had this real bonding thing. Yeah. And I think I think part of that is, is the disability, but also part of it is being an Australian and having grown up with it and just going, no, I've, I've now got to the point where I just go, no, I'm just going to go straight in. But only with disability. I will... I will hesitate on any other topic for exactly the reasons.
2: Sorry? What about politics? What about that side of things on your TV show, being an outsider? Do you not not feel you can have a little bit of an advantage there and that you've got a different approach to things than maybe UK presenters would have?
3: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I've got the outside eye. I can go back home at the end of it. I haven't grown up with politics being a certain way. So I'm not, we get accused of being, uh, you know, bashing the Tories over in England, but I'm not. Anti anything. I'm I'm not pro anything when it comes to politics. Um Especially when it comes to, to uh, British politics. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel, I mean, that's great as a comedian generally. Like, I, you know, when I come to Ireland, I've got 10 minutes of material at the beginning of my show that I can only do in Ireland <laughs> about Irish people that I picked up whilst being here. And because we all love it when a foreigner comes in and goes, you know, you do that funny oh, thing. And go, oh, yeah. of course we do that funny thing. I hadn't realised we did <laughs> that. Wait, funny
0: that's thing. funny? <laughs> yeah, Don't exactly. everyone did that.
2: <laughs> Has it become more difficult to make that kind of comedy, to make an impact with that? You know, you, just with how, crazy things have gotten you, you
1: couldn't you literally could not write up a character like Scaramucci for example the joke, the joke can't be funnier than the thing itself like. it's really hard at the moment isn't it I mean
3: listening to what you were saying about the mooch before yeah. <laughs> it, it, do you know what it struck me I was listening to you guys when you were talking about the mooch and Trump and all of that kind of stuff if if you took out any political context, if you didn't know what you were talking about, you would assume it was a reality show. Mm. Do you know what I mean? This new cast member's come in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got a catchy nickname. He's brash. He doesn't care who are your fans. I thought
0: like kind of Series 5 of The Sopranos, you know, when you thought you'd seen everything. <laughs>
3: yeah. You know, that's where yeah. the mooch kind of fits in. And here's, here's what I can't work out at the moment, especially when it comes to American politics, whether... Whether this is all genius, whether someone is pulling the strings and going, right, if we create this reality show in the White House, then people aren't going to realise what we're actually doing behind the scenes. And so there could be some really evil stuff going on, but we're distracted by the mooch and Trump and Sean Spicer
1: and all these guys. I find that thought almost reassuring, Um, (laughs) the the idea of of some design or orchestration, even if it was evil. Yeah. Is, is, is almost more reassuring than what is actually happening. Which is chaos. <laughs> right, the alternative
3: is they have absolutely no idea okay, what, they're nobody doing. Knows what they're doing. I, think. I heard a story, I can't repeat where I heard this story, but I'll tell you. that um, you know that first day that Trump met Obama mm-hmm. in the White House when he became president? I heard a story that when the, when the doors closed, and this probably lends more idea to the theory that they have no idea what they're doing, Trump said to Obama, uh, so where are my guys And Obama said, what do you you mean? He said, well, where where are the guys that are going to run everything for me when I'm president? And Obama said, no, you you bring your own guys. Trump was like, what? What do you mean I bring my own guys? Obama went, "My, my guys leave with me. You bring your own guys, and Trump would then turn around to his people and went, "I'm going to bring my own guys." <laughs> <laughs> he literally had no idea. That's amazing. <laughs> so how do you I'm adapt? I'm terrifying, to but you know, whatever. Yeah, I, yeah. How do you adapt to this? How, has has
2: your comedy changed, and particularly within the the parameters of the, of a TV show, as things have gotten a lot darker? Has that changed how you approach what you're doing?
3: It really. I mean, what what I found really interesting with Trump because we've basically been on air every week of his presidency thus far, I think we had three off in the middle, people get sick of it really quickly. If you thought, stop banging on about Trump. Why are you talking about this guy? And I think that's also part of his plan is to just be as bonkers as possible to the point where people just get sick of you talking (laughs) about how bonkers he is and then the real stuff can happen. I think. I don't know. (laughs) It is that thing, isn't it, of... Is this a genius plan?
1: Is, are we being distracted by a reality TV show? I think we can, show? we can rule out the genius
3: plan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there yeah. may that's be a plan, a who knows that's, a, that's about the full extent of it, a plan of some description. Adam, it's been fascinating hearing about your excellent work behind the mic, but what about your abilities on the field? We'll give you a moment. Okay. We'll give you a moment to get the competitive juices flowing here. Up next, on Second Captain Sunday, we're going to lift the lid on this sporting life of Adam Hills.
1: RTE Radio 1.
2: You're listening to Second Captain Sunday with Owen Ken and Murph here. Clonan Foley has tweeted at Second Captains to say, Loving Second Captain Sunday, and rt won with Adam Hills. Knowing uh, I know that Irish power athletes regard it as a badge of honour to be a guest on the brilliant The Last Legs. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, Jason know. Jason Smith and
3: uh, Michael McKillop. Properties. Michael McKillop, yeah yeah, 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 both appeared on the show. Two
2: superstars of, of, of para sports. I'm going to throw an Aussie stereotype at you, and you're going to tell me <laughs> if it's on. true in your case. You grew up with a healthy, outdoorsy lifestyle. Playing lots of sports in the sunshine?
3: Yes, very much so. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of uh, backyard cricket, street cricket. Uh, My parents got me into tennis very early, I think, again, because of the prosthetic. Well, actually, my parents were told very early on, get him into gymnastics. um, Make sure he's doing something physical uh, so that he doesn't just kind of think, oh, well, the leg's going to stop me from doing everything. So when I was five, I think I started doing gymnastics uh, as a kid. So kind of, I never really got... That amazing, and I can still bust out a cartwheel or a, you know a, a handstand every now and again. But it was a great way of of getting that kind of getting over the foot thing, and and not letting it stop me from doing anything. And then I played tennis. Uh, I ended up coaching tennis uh, when I was in my twenties, when I was at, at college. Um, but, yeah, I played rugby league at school. I played a little bit of golf at high school as well. So, yeah, it was... A v- and swimming, of course, we were all taught to swim at a, at a young age.
2: Was it more difficult for you, though, than the other kids? Did you notice yourself finding it harder to gr- grasp these sports? No, not no? really.
3: No. Uh, I mean, the only thing I found was playing when I, when I would play rugby league... I'd feel bad for the other kids tackling a prosthetic leg (laughs) because they were going to come off worse than me. (laughs) Um, And even now, if I play football, in Kilkenny there's always the comedian's uh, football match. Oh, at the Cutlass Festival. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I always make sure my right... Uh, prosthetic is well padded up because if anyone if anyone's shin goes into that because it's carbon you can run over it with a truck and it's not going to break. If you hit it with your shin, you're going to do yourself some massive damage. So <laughs> I'm always very careful of that. You so know, it sounds color. like it was a pretty sport was a pretty healthy part of for your own for your
2: own i suppose self-esteem of feeling like as you said feeling like you don't have a disability that there's nothing nothing wrong with you here you're able to play you're able to do what everyone else is doing
3: yeah it's funny you say do you know what i've just realized what my sporting highlight is going to be so we will come to that in a minute i've just suddenly realized what it is so i you know i think there's something about being a comedian that um i i will always you know comedians have to be losers Comedians can't be winners. That's the whole point of comedy. You can't, (laughs) because the the story can't end. And then I won the trophy. (laughs) The story has to be, and then I tripped and landed in the crowd. So to the point, I've I've, I've been thinking about sporting highlights. I, I, I played at the Australian Open tennis in a pro celebrity match. Uh, and I was asked to play. There was another comedian called Dave Hughes, and he was partnered up with an Iranian tennis player called Mansour Barami. And I got there, and I was partnered up with Mats villander mm. the Swedish tennis mm. player, who I idolised, one of my idols as a kid. And I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm playing tennis with Mats villander This is amazing. And... Uh, We got out on the court and he said, do you want forehand or backhand? And I went, well, look, what do you want? You're the tennis player. And he went, no, 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 it's up to you. And I went, no, no, no. And he went, no, come on, where are you comfortable? I said, I'm more comfortable on the backhand side. He said, fine, you should have backhand. And then about halfway through the match, he went to my side and I went, oh, I'm on backhand. He went, oh, I normally play backhand. I got confused.
1: I said, well, you should have played. No, 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 no.
3: And then we ended up losing and it was, ama- I mean, the most amazing thing to look up on the scoreboard and see in the name Hills Valanda <laughs> <laughs> yes. and go, yeah, we won the first set, we lost the second set and then we lost the third set. Um, But afterwards I was talking to my brother who was also a a massive tennis fan and he went, you put Mats Verlander on the forehand side? (laughs) The guy with the greatest backhand of the 80s? And you put him, what were you thinking? So that every sporting highlight that I should have is always undercut. (laughs) Something like that. Um, the greatest thing I ever did in rugby league was was run along the sidelines at the the news. And no, it was the New South Wales Rugby League Sevens competition, uh, and I was I was a cable runner behind the cameraman. So my job was to run behind the cameraman and make sure he didn't trip over the cable. <laughs> did you see where this is going? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I did? That I nailed that job. <laughs> can I just point out? But at one point, I I really did question my career as. You know, something. Someone set off downfield. The cameraman's gone off. I'm sprinting behind him. I would have been 19, and all I heard from the crowd was, "Run, cord boy, run!" (laughs) (laughs) So, so every cord boy, (laughs) every little sporting thing, I, I just, and, and for a start, I'm not great at competition. I, I, I do get a little bit nervous. The best tennis I ever played, I'll be honest, was when I was, either, was, when I was still drunk from the night before <laughs> because the nerves were gone. But I, even when I played that thing with Mats Verlander, I could feel... You know when you watch a tennis player choke? Hmm. And you think, how, how, how does that happen? When you're standing there and you've got Mats Verlander, you know, he's serving in particular. I remember one serve he hit and Dave returned it and I missed the volley. And it was an easy put away volley, and I turned to Mats Valander as a joke and went, <laughs> "Shouldn't miss volleys like that, should I?" And he went, "Not when I'm serving." <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. And then, and then every muscle in your body tightens up, and then you're on a court, there's a thousand people watching you. You've got Mats Valander there, and you're trying to serve, and you're trying to raise your arm, and you go, "What? Is there concrete in my veins?" <laughs>
2: Even your ball boy experience, I believe, that I referenced (laughs) earlier on, wasn't an altogether happy one. You're exactly
3: right. So I ball boyed. It was the Sydney Indoor Championships. That particular year, Ivan Lendl was playing, uh, as was Boris Becker um, and Pat Cash. Uh, And I remember my particular job was to... And in this game, it was it was Lendl versus Cash, and I was sitting up at the scoreboard, the little not the main scoreboard. There was a little one at the back of the court that that you kind of flip your stuff. And Ivan Lendl had sawdust in his pocket, and he would put sawdust on his racket to keep the racket dry, so it wouldn't get too sweaty. And but then he'd throw a bit on the court. And between ends, uh, between ends, it was my job to sweep up the court. <laughs> so of course I've run out, And I've swept up the court, and the umpire's called time. And I thought oh, I better leave it, and I've run back. And Pat Cash has just walked up to me, looked at the court, looked at me, and went, "You missed a bit." <laughs> and yes. then it, that was like ten thousand people watching. <laughs> Dude, I just had that to go is out, cool. sweep up the court, while Pat Cash just stood over me. And clearly, he was trying to make a point as well. I used
2: to love Pat Cash. I love the headband. I love the style. I've, I've, but
3: yeah, having said that, it. we've had him on the last leg since. Okay. I, I knocked a drink over on the last leg, and I made him come okay. out. And clean it <laughs> up. So. And then, and then when I sat down, the audience applauded, and I think they were applauding me in retrospect, but at the time I thought they were applauding the players, so I just sat there and gave a really sad <laughs> On camera, I got home, my mum went, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> so every, every little sporting thing that I've tried has always ended in, in a funny failure of some sort, and I think that's led to me being a comedian. But, and I've just realised this, yes. I've just realised, this is and, and something happened last week, that I got sport for the first time. Go on. And I got, in particular, I got running. I've always got sport because I'll run all day after a tennis ball or a football, but running for the sake of running, I just do not get. And part of it is probably having a prosthetic, but I just don't get it. Um, but this, um, this former Paralympian called Sophia Warner organized something in London that's going to happen in a couple of weeks' time, and it's called the Superhero Triathlon. And for some reason, after the Paras last year, when I saw Triathlon was an event, I thought... I don't know why I'd like to have a go at that. I can swim, I can cycle, I can vaguely run. And around the same time, this thing came up, the superhero triathlon event, and it was for people with disabilities. And she was looking for disabled team captains. And she contacted me and said, would you be a team captain? And I went, yes. So I started training for a paratriathlon, which is a 750-metre swim, 20k bike ride and a 5k run. And I was going to the gym, I was doing it all in the gym, and then after a few months of that, she said, well, actually, you only do one leg of the triathlon <laughs> no, no. because we're asking kids, disabled kids, to do the other two legs, to compete to be on your team. So we've, we've found someone for the swim and someone for the bike ride. You have to do the run. You have to do the 1K run. So I started training. I started properly training. I've been going to a physio. I've been going to the gym to, to work out how to, how to nail this kind of one kilometer run. And the last, when I ran on my own in the park, I was about six and a half, seven minutes And I went, "Ah, okay. And then when I ran on the treadmill with a physio, he went, okay, you could do this in five and a half. And now what's happening is the the triathlon's in two weeks' time, but I have to go back to Australia because of a a visa issue. I have to go back and get a new visa. And so Sophia said, how about, we don't want to let the kids down, you come out to the park, you run your kilometre, we'll film it and we'll play it in on the day. So last Monday I went out, it was Dorney Lake, uh, the west of London. The track was all there, I was ready to do my K, and she said, what time do you think you're going to do? And I went, look if I do six and a half minutes, I'll be happy. Mm. And she went, okay, well, my best was 5.09. And I went, well, there's no way I'm going to do that. I ran my absolute guts out and I got back and she went, you just ran 4.48. <laughs> I've never been <laughs> wow. so happy in my
2: life. Well, that's <laughs> got to be the sporting highlight. I yeah. think that, that is, and it's taken me till now to get there. <laughs> Only achieved in the last couple of weeks. Incredible stuff. Adam, you've got a gig to prepare for tonight. So let's yes. not keep you in suspense any okay. longer. There's no more you can do at this point anyway. Your destiny is out of your hands. It's okay. time now, ladies and gentlemen, to rank this sporting life of Adam Hill's.
0: I could have been a contender I could have have been somebody
2: Okay I will now pass you over to our 2017 This Sporting Life Grand Marshal Kieran Murphy -Murphy.
0: Thank you Owen and it's a responsibility Obviously I don't take lightly this whole This Sporting Life Grand Marshal and Independent Adjudicator Crack so Adam to explain I cruelly rate you On your sports ability, (laughs) knowledge of current Sporting affairs and any other factor that I see fit And then attempt to sum up your entire worth As a human being in one number As an indication The man you're gigging with tonight At the Vodafone Comedy Festival In the Ivy Gardens Is David already David Got 85 points Out of 100 last year yep. So you know what You should be aiming for uh, You have f- You've just told us About the, um, uh, the The lowest ever moment In your life Which is Insufficient accuracy In sweeping up sodas For Pat Cash <laughs> for, uh, When you were A 16 year old bull boy Which is fair enough But I do also like The fact that you Got him back On your television show To humiliate him Debase him For your own uh, evil ends mm-hmm. so regardless of your own personal opinion that's still your uh, sporting highlight in my book your current sports knowledge is centred mainly around your beloved South Sydney Rabbitohs. holes yep. uh, and like all Australians I believe you count their owner Russell Crowe as a close personal friend <laughs> so I'm pretty close here but I do have one further question to ask mm-hmm. and uh, I'll factor it all in uh, very quickly, is sixteen not a little too old to be a ball boy? <laughs> I mean, you were probably six foot one. You're probably taller than even Lendl. So I, I, th- I think I have everything. Uh, uh, so it's going to be an eighty-two point total for you, which is good enough for a podium finish. Oh wow! Can't say it fair. Now we have only had four guests this season, so okay. don't be getting too ahead of yourself. But third place it is, uh, Adam Hills. This has been
3: your sporting oh, life. Um, Amazing. And, and the one big question I just had very quickly was that better than Dara?
0: We're yeah. going to
2: have to research that, so that's that No really
3: I'm pretty certain it,
0: it wasn't I'm sorry <laughs> yeah. I'm
2: sorry The next episode of Last Leg is on Friday night <laughs> 9 o'clock Channel 4 but don't wait that long go and see Adam Hills tonight at the Vodafone Comedy Festival in Dublin's Ivy Gardens you're playing in the Comedy Hub Indeed with David O'Doherty yeah. Adam Hills you've been absolutely amazing oh, Thank Cheers, so lads. joy Hope you like that one. That's Roadrunner by the Modern Lovers here on Second Captain Sunday. Murph, can you hear that noise? That low rumbling sound in the distance? I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you don't hear all that whooping and hollering, (laughs) kid. It's the sound of an entire province descending on Dublin. Mayo, Roscommon and Galway supporters all on the road. Yeah. The first time three Connacht teams have shared a billing at Croke Park?
0: Yeah, 2002 there were two quarterfinals. There was two Connacht teams on the Sunday and one on the Saturday. But the first time, three all on the one billing. How many Murphys on the way up? Uh, there's six in two separate cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother just overtook my other brother on the M. Literally just texted me three seconds ago to say that uh, one overtook the other. All driving safely and within the speed limit. Of, of course. I mean, I mean, you're allowed overtaken. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not painting the man as uh, Alan Prost here, on <laughs> <laughs> Interesting mid-80s reference by me there. <laughs> yeah. Alright
2: I think we've got to go At this stage So uh, we will be back Next Sunday morning If you don't want to wait that long Why not have a little Look at secondcaptains.com Where you can hear us Broadcasting from our own studios Every day during the week Marion Finucane is up next Big thanks to Sheila Nivale On sound To Mark Horgan and Simon Hick Producing Connor O'Doherty Research Thanks Murph Thanks again Thank Thank you all Thanks very much for listening Go and see Adam Hills tonight If you're in Dublin He's brilliant as you heard For the last hour or so Here on Second Captain Sunday Have a good one folks
3: second gap and first gap and whatever.